Good morning. My name is Rachel Trigo, and um, I will be leading us in the scripture reading today. You can open your uh, pew Bibles to number 607. We'll be reading from two sections of Ecclesiastes, beginning Ecclesiastes 1, and then we'll flip to the back to Ecclesiastes 12, beginning in verse 8. Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does anyone gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new? It was there already, long ago. It was there before our time. There is no remembrance of people of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Now Ecclesiastes 12, beginning in verse 8. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched for just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of every human being. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. How's that for scripture? You know, we live in a world that is, uh, loves to live by axioms, statements that are thought to be true, and people often claim to live by. 
know, we post them on our social media feeds. We wear T-shirts with them. We have them on our desktop, uh, on our computer. We even might even have them on our office coffee mugs if you still go into the office. Maybe you've heard some of them before. Believe in yourself. Be true to who you are. Carpe diem, seize the day. Or this one I like. Don't let idiots ruin your day. Is that a good axiom to live by? Never too ashamed to harness the power of marketing. American Christians also have their own parallel universe of axioms. Like WWJD, what would Jesus do? Or let go, let God. Which I really I don't like because it's not grammatically correct. Or everything happens for a reason. You know, in many ways, these axioms help us make sense of our lives, and they serve as these guideposts for how we might approach life. But if you've lived life for a while, you'll realize that life doesn't always follow axioms, right? Life throws its curveballs at us, and we're trying to make sense of it all. We want to know the reason why things happen to us. Why did this happen to me? And if God is so good, why does he let bad things happen to good people? It can often be disorienting. Author Kate Bowler wrote a witty memoir entitled, Everything Happens for a Reason, and Other Lies I've Loved. In this book, she reflects on her battle with stage four cancer. But Kate wasn't the first author to meditate on the incongruity between life wisdom and what actually happens in real life. The phrase, everything happens for a reason, comes from Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse one. Whoops. Which says, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes was written millennia earlier and contains the reflections of someone referred to as the teacher or the, here in the NIV. And often, that's the only quote that we probably use from the book of Ecclesiastes. Because in our can-do, the world is our oyster uh, American idealism, the rest of Ecclesiastes is just pretty downright depressing, right? Well, I mean, look at it. He opens. All right, vote. Fight, fight, fight. Okay. Uh, verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, the teacher says. Everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. If you read through the rest of the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, you'll find that common refrain. In other versions, it's vanity of vanities. Meaningless, meaningless. And at the heart of this refrain is the teacher saying that life is hard and then you die. It's essentially what he said. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> what are we to make of this kind of axiom? And what did God have in mind to include this book and this, this, this verse, scripture, uh, verse in scripture? That's all the teacher has to offer Someone attributed, this teacher is attributed often to Solomon, one of the wisest and most materially successful people to have ever lived on the face of this earth. You know, today we begin a new series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and over the next two months, I invite you to, to read through this book at least once, even in one sit sitting if you can. And, and we're, we're to, to help you get oriented as we go through this series over the coming weeks. Also, Join us for 3D Deep Dive Dialogues as we begin those once again uh, next week after church. On the first and third weeks of the month, we'll be meeting in the 
uh, Annex second floor to just break down and discuss your questions and how to go deeper into this book led by Jerry Herbert. You know, the series is entitled Living Life in Reverse. But why this title? Well, first off, the title isn't suggesting that we should always be looking to our past, our past successes, our past failures, as if pining for our glory uh, days gone by is the way to live our life. Rather, so much of our modern lives is focused on the present and the immediate future. We're focused on this next step. How do we survive? We live by these axioms to maximize our happiness, to uh, be as healthy as possible, to accumulate as much stuff before we die. We're living our lives with our feet on the gas pedal, trying to enjoy the view until we die. But the book of Ecclesiastes offers us a different perspective. What if we were to look at our death, for, uh, our, our life from the point of our viewpoint of our death and look back? Not with the perspective of morbidness, but with a perspective of true wisdom and humility. What if we were to live life in reverse from the perspective of our final days? That's what Ecclesiastes has to offer to us. And in this first message of the series, I just want to help us orient by answering these three questions. How to make the most of Ecclesiastes, how to make the most of what he calls meaninglessness, and how to make the most of your death. We heard Rachel read beautifully from the first and last chapter of this book. Now, these form the bookends of the book, not only because of their position in the book, but because of their voices. You see, there's actually two voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. One is identified as the teacher here in the NIV or preacher in, in the NRSV or um, ESV versions. The Hebrew word kohelet actually means assembler, the assembler of wisdom. And Kohelet speaks in the first person from chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 12, verse 7. So this middle section, most of the book. But what Rachel read for us came from this other person who refers to Kohelet in the first part of chapter 1 and the last part of chapter 12, the book ends of this book. Kohelet, the one who takes up most of the book, has been traditionally linked to Solomon because of the reference to son of David in that first verse. We know that Solomon was one of the wisest men to ever have lived, yet ended his life quite miserably. However, some scholars doubt that it was Solomon who wrote that because the Hebrew language reflects a much later date in the history of Israel. But whatever the case may be, Kohelet is likely referencing someone who is very successful and very wise, considered very wise, and gained much wisdom through his lifetime. But the message for us as we read Ecclesiastes is that it can be a warning that there's this illusion that if I only had more money or more power or more wisdom or more pleasure, then I would be satisfied by life. The book of Ecclesiastes deconstructs this ideal. And with the second voice that speaks of Kohelet is often attributed to the son of Kohelet. So perhaps if it was Solomon, maybe one of his children. Kohelet is an example of honest thinking about what he calls life under the sun. In essence, he's saying, yo, Kohelet is 100% correct on this. Under the sun, life is hard, and then you die. But the second voice rep represents an above-the-sun perspective that we heard from chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, where, which ended 
saying, Now all that has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. So here we have two speakers giving wisdom about the, what to center our lives upon. Gehelet helps us point out how all things that we bank on in life to give us meaning and purpose often fail to do so. Kohelet's wisdom, while seemingly depressing, is actually incredibly freeing. He names things as they are. He gives us the perspective of one who has achieved all that can be achieved in life, and looking back, give, offers a gift to all who would listen. Saying, at the end of your life, if everything under the sun is as difficult and meaningless as it really is, how would you live your life between now and then? How do you live differently? Though you may not know the answer for yourself, we discover that there is one who makes meaning of all that is created. There is one who knows all and can be trusted. As Kohelet, the teacher, reminds us, he says, fear God and keep his commandments. You know, we spend most of our lives trying to make sense of what happens to us in our, and in our world. And some of us might approach it fatalistically, saying, well, what's going to happen is going to happen, so why bother even trying? It doesn't matter anyways. Others of us might think we can be masters of our destiny. You are the ones who determine how far you will go in life. And if you don't get there, then you're the only one who has, it can be blamed. You can't blame anyone else. And those who make it, living life this way, often project a sense of pride and self-righteousness. They thumb their noses down it. Huh, you just can't do it, could you? But here in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet's wisdom appears to be fatalistic. It's saying, oh, that's, everything's meaningless. But something else is going on. Framed in the whole context of Scripture, they actually express a pining for a world before it was broken for sin. It's what Zach Eswine describes as a longing to recover Eden, which is the title of his book on Ecclesiastes. If you want to find a good companion for this book, you can pick this one up. The words of Kohelet sound depressing, but they are incredibly realistic as they remind us of how things actually are. Those things that we look to give meaning in life actually won't give us meaning. And only when we see life as God intended in the garden, in Eden, do we begin to see the meaning and hope that this, of our broken reality that has been impacted by sin. When life doesn't go the way we imagine, we're often asking the questions, why God, why, why? I just want to know why God. And there are times where we do get a hint of why th things happen. Sometimes it's our poor choices. Sometimes it's the poor choices of others. But most of the time, we don't actually get to know the reason why. And when we can't figure out those things, we can get depressed. Or we might simply exclaim, as Kohelet does, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. Or vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What's the point? These, this word, vanity or meaninglessness, comes from the Hebrew word habel which is notoriously difficult to translate. It literally means breath 
or vapor, as we find in verses like Job chapter 7, verse 16, where he says, I loathe my life, I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. That's Habel. Psalm 39, 5. Behold, you have made me my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Habel, again. Proverbs 21, verse 6. A fortune made by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor. Habel, and a deadly snare. This word is used as breath and vapor, but it's also used figuratively as vanity or meaninglessness or futile, as we find here in Ecclesiastes. In fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes uses this word 40 times throughout the book. I think he's a fun guy to be around. This word conjures up a picture of something that is fleeting. It's elusive. It's hard to grasp. In Ephesians 1 verse 14, I mean Ecclesiastes 1 14, the Kohelet actually says, I have seen all things that are un done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. Habel. All of them are Habel, a chasing after the wind. The word and its difficulty in being translated has informed this sermon series graphic. It's like vapor. How do you grasp that? Finding meaning is elusive. Singer and songwriter John Lennon of Beatles fame writes in his song, Beautiful Boy, saying, Life is what happens when to you, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Life's true meaning is often missed because we're too focused on the wrong things. Kohelet's wisdom points out that there is life happening when we're busy making all of our plans and when we're trying to make sense of our lives. And though our plans and our attempts to make meaning of it all are fleeting, there is someone who actually knows what's going on. In fact, there is someone who is actually making meaning out of all that's going on. We're not left alone in them. If we're willing to listen to the voice of this teacher, the question is, is will we pay attention to this voice of this other teacher? You know, as I mentioned earlier, our sermon series title, Living Life in Reverse, is intended to help us think about how we live our lives from now until our death, looking back from our death. But I'm also deeply aware that our modern Western culture is rather squeamish about death. And this aversion towards death even creeps into the church. Let me give you an example. Take a look at this draft of another design that I was working, we were working on for this series. Full disclosure, it was my favorite design. I wanted to use it. But when I sent it around for some comments, everyone said, oh, it's too dark, it's too dark. The skulls, they're just too dark. Now I understand how skulls may be unsettling to some because of their associations with certain subcultures, which aren't wrong in themselves. You know, punk rock, goth, uh, motorcycle crowd, uh, skateboard crowd. We see them plast skulls plastered on the side of instruments of war and, and death. But did you know the first peep artists to use skulls and skull imagery were monks? Every time they would pray on their desk, they would have a candle, their Bible, and a skull. And the skull wasn't just some plastic mass-produced skull that you ordered off of Amazon. 
The skull was like a father that they used to know. And it was his skull that they would keep in front of them as they prayed. Monks would take that skull and pray with that in front of them. Not with deep morbidity, but with, to keep their mortality right before them. The point is, life is like a vapor, and I'm going to die. And I don't want to waste my life on trivial things before I do that. Monks would use this Latin phrase, memento mori, which means remember your death. Memento mori is another way of saying live life in reverse. Developed by Benedictine monks, memento mori also informed other traditions and practices as well. Whenever a monk died and was buried on this monastery grounds, they would dig another grave immediately next to the one who was just buried. And they would leave that grave open so that all the monks were passed, and that cemeteries were often between the chapel and the cafeteria. So every time you went to go pray, and every time you went to go eat, you'd see this open grave. And you'd be reminded that that's going to be me one day. So how am I going to live my life in light of that? Again, this isn't meant to be masochistic. I hear the odds and the grunts. But it's made, meant to be joyfully aware of the miracle of the life that we do have. Alan Jones writes on the Desert Father saying, The spiritual life is written from the vantage point of our deathbed. The spiritual life, everything we live from this day forward is written from the vantage point of our deathbed. It's another way of saying, live life in reverse. One more. There's a Trappist monastery in France. Have you seen enough skulls for yet? Had the words, have these words, hodi mini cras tibi. When you go to visit this tomb, you see this above it, which means today I die, tomorrow it may be you. It's another way of saying, memento mori, live life in reverse. You know, this year I got back into riding a motorcycle after a 20-year hiatus. And so needing a helmet, I picked one up off of Facebook Marketplace, and, uh, and I, I bought it, and, and I noticed something. I was like, whoa, there's a skull on my helmet. <laughs> See, Western Andrew thought at first, hmm, that's kind of morbid. <laughs> what will people think of Pastor Andrew riding around with a skull on its helmet? But in light of Ecclesiastes, I began to think of it differently. See, every time I put on my helmet, I see that skull, and it reminds me not only of the importance of riding safely and responsibly, <laughs> but I'm also reminded of how to put my enjoyment of this in light of my eventual death. How much does this really matter? And between now and then, how will my life be maximally, maximally impact those around me? How will my early, might my early and unnecessary death, because of my foolishness, impact those around me if I die too soon. You know, skulls and death don't have to be morbid. They can help us remind, they can help remind us that we are all accountable before God for all that we do. Don't waste the precious time that God has given to us to, and use it to do good, to love God, to love others. Memento mori. Live life in reverse. Fear God. Keep his commands. 
You know, as wise as the teacher of Ecclesiastes is, we actually have access to a greater wisdom from a greater teacher. You know, on this side of the incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, we not only consider our lives in light of our own deaths at some point, but we can consider our lives in light of Jesus' death. Because we know on the other side, for those who believe, on the other side of Jesus' death is resurrection. And that shows us that death doesn't win. Death doesn't have the final say. When Jesus died, he breathed his last breath. But that breath wasn't a breath of futility or of meaninglessness. That breath was pregnant with vitality and victory for all who might believe in Christ. When we put our trust in Jesus, when we walk in union with Christ's life, death, and resurrection, our lives have the capacity to become much more meaningful, much more significant than we could ever imagined, have imagined. Our lives can be much more joy-filled and hopeful because whatever successes or failures we have here on earth, under the sun, they are framed by the sun, S-O-N, who sees all from above the sun, S-U-N. When we follow Jesus, we are joined into the story that God is writing for all creation. Will you trust the voice of this teacher? As you do so, may you find true meaning, true hope, and true good in all that you do from now until you die. Live life in reverse. Amen.